If you have your Bibles, uh, just turn with me. We're in uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 5. I'm going to be reading from verses 5 to 14. It's the second half of um, uh, verse 5 to 14 of 1 Peter chapter 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, and, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of trials the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world and after you have suffered a little while the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore confirm strengthen and establish you to him be the dominion or rule forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, that could be a reference to the church in Rome, she who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This morning is our uh, last in our series in 1 Peter, which we've been calling uh, Princes, Priests and Exiles. Uh, Throughout this series, we've been brought back to this image that Peter uses again and again of the church as exiles or, or foreigners, as we've called it. And this is just to say Christians are not like the rest of the world. There is something fundamentally different about Christians to everybody else. We are different. We're from a different kingdom. We're from a different place. We have different values. Just as uh, somebody from a different country who comes to live in the UK, they bring with them their food. They bring with them their, their cultural values. And and just in that same way, Peter's saying Christians are different from the world around them. They they are fundamentally different. Just completely different. And And he uses this word exiles to sort of draw a parallel between us, the church today, and the stories in the Old Testament of the people of God who are sent into exile. The kingdom of Judah and of Israel is is overtaken by uh, their enemies and it is a, it's a judgment on the people of God and the people of God are scattered through the nations and they are in that moment working out what does it mean the temple's been destroyed the kingdom has been destroyed what does it mean to be the people of God in a world where there is no kingdom it doesn't look like there's a kingdom here what does it look like to belong to a kingdom that I can't see And one of the things that comes out in this story is in Jeremiah, the word of God comes to these people who are in exile as foreigners in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, the prophet says, the Lord says, bless the city that you're in. Be a blessing 
to the people who surround you. Be a blessing to the city of your exile. You don't belong to it. You're not a citizen of it. You're still a citizen of God's kingdom, but bless it. And we've said, you know, as we've come through this letter, that that's what we are to be as exiles, as the church, as, as foreigners in this land, belonging to the kingdom of heaven. We are to be a blessing to this kingdom. We have to be a blessing to the world that we're in. We've seen how that's outworked in, in our marriages, in our families, in our working lives, in how we interact with government. We need to be people who are a blessing to the community that we're in. And it's our heart. We've come out earlier as we, we started. It's our heart for North Hull is that we're going to be a blessing to these people. The people are going to be blessed by our being here. Our hope is that they're going to be blessed by coming into the kingdom. But beyond that, we're also just called to be a blessing to all and everyone, to all extents. We see this, this, this call on, in the Old Testament outworked in the life of Daniel. Now, some of you may know the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel is taken with his, with his friends and others from Israel into the service of a foreign king in their exile. In their, in their, in their exile. And, he, and in that time, they are called to be a blessing. So they, they obey that call to be a blessing. And they, you see them build up this kingdom. The kingdom seems to... Do well because the people of God are holding these positions within the kingdom. They are, and in that time, they are called to hold on to the promises of God. We see Daniel wrestling with the promises of God over the people of God. To remember who he is. To be a blessing and yet at the same time not conforming to the world around him. And so there are times in the stories of Daniel and his friends where it seems like they are going to get themselves into a bit of trouble, whether that's furnaces, being thrown into furnaces or lion's dens, they are in trouble because they are standing up and against, even whilst they're being a blessing to the world, they're standing up and against the values of the world. And they suffer for it. Daniel, we hear Daniel thrown into the lion's den for, for standing firm in what he believes God has called him to, remembering the promises of God and his identity in God. And Peter draws out this parallel between those stories then of, the, of Israel in exile and us today. We are exiles, we're told. And whilst we're in exile, we are called to, like Daniel, remember our identity, who we are in Christ. Remember the promises that are over us. Right the way from the beginning of the letter, Peter's saying, remember the call. Remember that you have this great promise, these pure and precious promises that are yours in Jesus. There is a, a kingdom coming that you belong to. We're called to remember these things. And we're called in this time to play the role of priests. That's why it's in our sermon title. You know, we're called to point people to God and to be where people meet God. Where do you meet God? It's in the church, amongst the people of God. We, the church, are where God dwells. And at the same time, we are, expect to suffer. So Peter talks a lot about suffering in this letter. And so we, in this series, we've come across suffering quite a few times, haven't we? We've looked at what it means to suffer as a Christian. Because Peter talks about it a lot. And he's talking, he's writing to a group of churches that are, we've said in, in Monday Turkey, that are, are just beginning to suffer for their faith. Because they're standing in opposition. Whilst they're blessing the people around them, they're standing in opposition to the values uh, and the beliefs of the people around them. And so they're beginning to suffer uh, uh, as Christians. And it's important when we talk about suffering that we realise 
that it is a very, very real topic. This isn't theoretical, this isn't hypothetical, somewhere out there, one day, this isn't a classroom discussion on suffering. When we talk about suffering, we're talking about real things, on the ground things. And I look up across this room and I know that there are pains in people's lives. I know some of the things that some of us are going through and some of the, the frustrations and the sicknesses and the pains. And So suffering is real and so we need to approach it as real. And so the things that we've looked at in this series, they're not out there somewhere. They are on the ground to serve you as you come in the face of suffering and trial and pain and temptation. These things are to equip you for this. And so one of the things that that Peter really wants these churches to see in their suffering, he wants to answer these questions, he wants them to see what is happening in their suffering. He wants us to see, to understand what is happening in our suffering. That's one of the big questions, isn't it? You know, when, when you talk to somebody about God, one of the big objections is, well, why, does, why suffering? What's going on there? What's happening in that moment? It's a question even for Christians. What, what's going on behind this? What's, what's happening? Why am I suffering in this way? And secondly, he wants to answer the question of how do you respond to that? How do you suffer well? And right from the start of the series, we've seen some of these questions being answered, haven't we? You know, we are, we are exiles, rejected, as we say. That's one of the reasons for our suffering is because we don't belong to this world. And so we're going to... Go in the face of it. And so, of course, we're going to suffer because we are not like it. But we've also seen that our suffering is, at least in part, God's judgment, both on us and on the world. In, verse, in chapter 4, verse 17, Peter talks about your suffering as being the judgment of God. Now, that might make us feel uncomfortable until we realise that the judgment of God for us isn't those of us who are in Jesus, those of us who belong to Jesus, who have accepted him as our saviour, the judgment of God is not, it's not punitive, it's not a punishment, it's not condemning. The judgment of God, because of what you know, we heard Sarah share earlier, because of what the cross has done, because Jesus has taken the, all of that punishment, all of the punishment has been swallowed up on the cross. The judgment of God now is not that for us. So when we suffer, it's not punishment. But the judgment of God works for us as a way of, Peter says, refining us. It's not a condemning judgment. But for us who are in Jesus, this judgment works for us to refine us like gold. Chapter 1, verse 7, we are being refined, being made clean, purified. And even right at the very beginning, as Peter's writing the address, he, he gets there, doesn't he? Remember we, when we first started, he talks about the Christians as being the elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. That's been planned by God. It's been planned by God for your purification, for, for being sanctified in Christ by the Holy Spirit. So it's, it, is, it is God at work. And so as we come into these last commands... And encouragements of Peter's to the churches. He is going to be, he's summing up everything that he said previously. But he's also building on all that we've seen before. And he shows us that behind every suffering, every trial, all of our life are two things. There are two agencies at work. And they require different responses. They, they demand different responses from us. We see 
the hand of God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. We've seen it, haven't we? In the, the, the judgment and the refining work of God in our lives through our suffering. It is God who's, whose hand is at work in these things. And we're to humble ourselves uh, under it. As, we, as, he, as he works these things to refine and perfect our faith. And secondly, he says, in our suffering is the roaring of the enemy. Who comes like a lion trying to devour your faith. Trying to destroy you. Trying to swallow you. The Greek is swallow you whole. He, what, that's what he's after. He's going to do everything he can to destroy your faith. This devil. To make you doubt God. Or to decide that actually having seen what this is going to cost me, it's not worth it. I don't, I don't want this. And at first it might feel to say, okay, these two things are happening underneath your suffering at the same time, simultaneously, feels a little bit like a contradiction. But actually, Paul, when he's writing about the, fo- the thorn in his flesh, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 12, he, he talks about this, this thorn in his flesh. He's, he says, I've received great revelations of God, but to stop me from becoming proud, hold on to that word, to stop me from becoming conceited, proud, he gave me this thorn. This is a gift from God. This pain, it's a gift from God. This uncomfortable thing that I'm asking God to take away from me, it's a gift, it's been given to me. But then he also refers to it as a messenger from Satan. Hang on. This is a gift from God and it's a messenger of Satan. How do you hold these two things? This is exactly what Peter's doing here. Recognising that in our suffering, these two agencies at work. And we're to respond to one with humility. To humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And secondly, we are to resist the work of the enemy. We're to resist. We must be humble and resist the enemy. And it's the opposite of this, actually. The opposite of these two responses is what makes it impossible for many people to receive the gospel. Pride is a huge killer of people receiving the gospel. Because they feel like, I don't need to be saved. I don't even like being told that I need to be saved. In fact, that's a... Uh, Jen and I, we, um, we have a friend, they were around our house one time, and we were just talking about what we do, it makes it quite easy to share the gospel, and we were just sharing it, and they, and they, you know, they, they like what we talk about, they like this God that we talk about, but they, they said, I don't like this word saved that you use, because it makes it sound like I can't do anything for myself, and think, you're on it, you're on the money, that's it, it's offensive, and it goes against pride. It hurts pride and fear. Many people, for fear of what they might lose, would reject the gospel. And so while some people might say, I can't believe the gospel because of this intellectual reason or because of that thing, it's never that. What's going on underneath is always pride or fear. That's what's keeping people from Christ. And so this morning I want us to look at these two things. Humility, resisting the enemy. I want us to look at how they, they fit together, how Peter fits them together in this passage, um, and what this means for us as a church. Now, firstly, with humility, we're told as Christians that we are to clothe ourselves with humility. Verse 5. Put it on. Wear it. Dress yourself in it daily. Cover yourself in it. If you forget to put it on, there's going to be some negative consequences. Wear it like clothes. 
You don't forget to put on your clothes. Don't forget to put on your humility. We are to dress ourselves in it. Humility is essential to the life of a Christian. It's essential because we're told, as verse 5 goes on, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Isn't that a scary thing? Scary and comforting at the same time. God opposes the proud. I can't think of anything more terrifying than the all-powerful God being against you. He says, I am against all pride. I will bear down against it. But I will give grace to the humble. I will give grace, good gifts, free gifts to the humble. God is so passionate about his glory, about showing who he is as king, as ruler, as good king. And your good, that he will not allow anything else to take his place in your life. Whether that's your money, or your, your, your perception of what you can do, your abilities, your gifts. Those things are pride. He was, he, he's not going to let those things take the place that he should rightly hold. This is what the Bible tells us is the root of pride. It's trying to get hold for ourselves something that belongs to God by right. And so pride is being self-satisfied, being satisfied in ourselves happy with ourselves when really it is God who provides our satisfaction it's God who makes us happy pride is being self-reliant when really as Christians as, as, as men and women we are called to be totally dependent on God and so actually when you see a Christian grow into maturity they don't become more independent of God they become more dependent on him we, pride causes us to think that we're beyond teaching we make ourselves, I can't, actually there's nothing anybody can add to me. God's instruction, his commands, they're not for me. And so they might be for somebody else. That's pride at work. It doesn't receive what God, the word of God says. It makes us disobedient. And that's, again, it's not for me. I can't receive instruction. It, makes, it means that we make much of ourselves. We enjoy it when people think that we're great. When really, our heart should be not about making ourselves look great, but about making Jesus famous. I would hate it, I would absolutely hate it if we became so excited about Freedom Church and our brand and our logo and whatever else we might be that we forget that we are here for the fame of Jesus. To make him known, forget Freedom Church. Let our name be buried in the sands of time but let Jesus be made known in North Hull. It's pride that would make much of ourselves. Pride puts ourselves at the centre. This is about me. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's all about God. Very clear through scripture. We feature in the story, but it's God's story. It's all about him. He's the main character. And we're there as, as, as pointers to him, to make much of him. And finally, pride refuses to trust God. It, it, Proverbs, it puts arrogance and trust as opposites pride refuses to trust God to believe him when he says that something is true we'll see a little bit more of these things you know God opposes this actually the whole gospel as we've said is is built to undermine pride we're told um, in scripture that it's not by works Ephesians 2 that so that no one could boast no one can say 
You know, on that day in eternity, I made it here on my merit. I got here because I worked hard. I did good. That's the perception of Christianity that some people have. If you do good, if you do certain good things, you can, get, you can earn your way into heaven. That's not the gospel. You can't do that. Because that would lead someone else to be able to boast. There's no boasting. And it comes as well, we're told in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, as, as, as Paul is unpacking how the gospel works, he's saying, look, it's, it's not come in as wisdom, as human wisdom, or as human power. Actually, the power of God and the wisdom of God have revealed the gospel to be something so foolish and so weak, a man dying on a cross. Completely undermines pride. The earliest picture of Jesus we actually have um, is it's a bit of graffiti on a Roman wall. Of, uh, it's just a, a donkey-headed man on a cross. And, and it says underneath it, uh, Alex Amenon worships his God. And it's basically making fun of this guy, Alex Amenon, who worships the... Who, what kind of God dies on a cross? This, this disgusting, humiliating death. And it is, it is you know, in the words of the song, it pours contempt on all my pride. There's no room for pride when you receive what the, when you see what the gospel is, it's not wisdom. It's the Greeks and their wisdom and their philosophy. They look at the cross and they look at the gospel and they say it's weakness, it's foolishness. And anybody with power would say weakness. And it, it cuts across pride. You have to humble yourself to receive the gospel. We're told we need to be humble towards one another, walking in the gospel. Counting one another as more, in the words of Paul to the Philippians, as more important than ourselves. Told, you know, clothe yourselves in humility towards one another. When we receive the gospel, that's outworked in how we relate to one another. And we are humble in God's ongoing work in our lives, even in our suffering. We humble ourselves, in the words of Peter here, under the mighty hand of God who is at work to bring about his goodness and his glory in our lives. We submit to that, not thinking that we're above it. No, God, I'm too good to suffer for this. I'm too good to be refined. No, we submit ourselves to the process that God has for us. We trust him. We trust him in our suffering, casting all our anxieties on him. Now, some versions, some translations of the Bible have this a little differently. Verse 6 and 7, it says, um, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Now, some of your translations that you might have in front of you would put that as a different sentence. Cast your anxieties on him. But, but in the ESV, and actually I think it comes out in the Greek, it's, it's a, it is one thing. Humble yourself by casting your anxieties on him. And so actually, holding on to anxiety, holding on to worry, is not trusting God. Remember what we said about how pride doesn't trust God? If you are waking up anxious, if you're kept awake by your anxiety, by your worry, that's sinful pride, not trusting God. Pride causes you to rely on your own ability rather than trusting God. Pride that says, I need to take care of this myself. And that will either be outworked in a, a, a warped view of your own ability. <laughs> I can take care of myself. Or it will lead you to anxious worry. 
You know, it's pride that keeps you awake at night. It's pride that keeps you awake at night when you're worrying about this thing. Pride that holds on to cares and worries and doesn't give them to God. We're told in Psalm 127, it is in vain that you eat the bread of anxious toil. He gives to his beloved sleep. He gives peace. It's in vain. Why are you holding on to this? Give it to him. Give it to him. He'll give you peace. In uh, Isaiah 51, we really see this come out. Isaiah 51, uh, the Lord says, he answers Israel and he says, I, I am he who, com- who comforts you. Who are you to be afraid and have, and have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid foundations of the earth? And you fear continually all day? I love that. How, who, who do you think you are to be, to be afraid? Who do you think you are to worry? It's not something that comes out in our positive living course. <laughs> but maybe it should. But there's a kind of, there's a, there is a, a challenge there. Who do you think you are? Don't you love that? Pussy, have you forgotten me? Have you forgotten me? You think that you, somehow this is on your shoulders and not on mine. Pride is so subtle that it will make you think that you're being humbled by holding on to your worries. That's not humility. It's pride. We can cast, we're told, we can cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. It's amazing comfort to us to know that the hand that is at work in transforming us and renewing us and in bringing about his, his judgments and his transformation in us, in refining us, in the fire, that same hand, that same mighty hand, is the same hand that guards and protects us throughout. Protects us from all things. Because we have an enemy. An enemy to resist. Who's out, who is desperate, as we say, to destroy us, to, as Jesus says to Peter, to sift you like wheat. He wants to, to pull you apart. He's going to do everything he can to, to swallow you whole, to, to make you think that, that this faith won't hold you, to make you think that God won't be able to protect you. In, in Revelation um, chapter 2, verse 10, uh, we see kind of letters going out to the churches. And Jesus says to one of the churches, says, Satan is coming for you. Don't be afraid, but he's coming for you. He's going to throw some of you in prison. So he's attributing the work of Rome and throwing people in prison to Satan. And he says, he's coming, and he, but hold firm. Hold firm, even to the point of death. You're going to be in prison for 10 days. You might die. You might be released. But hold firm in that. That God protects us, even in that. The mighty hand of God will guard us, even from this greatest threat of all. Not only that we lose our comfort which is what some other things threaten, what sicknesses threaten. Not only that we lose our, our, our homes, our jobs, our friendships, or even our lives, but, but the enemy is trying to threaten our very salvation. But, you know, that's what he's after. But we believe that God, this mighty hand of God that we submit ourselves to, is going to guard us even in that. He's going to guard us even in that. Romans 8.30 comes to mind. You know, those whom he predestined. Again, that's, Peter talks about that earlier in the letter. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorifies. 
There is nobody who God calls who is going to be snatched out of his hands. I love that song. No, no, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hands. If you've been called, if you've been called by God, the enemy will not have his way with you. He will not take you from the hand of God. Because God, what God caught, grabs hold of, he does not let go of. He who began this work in you will complete it. That's the promise of God on us. And yet, in that, there is a call on us to, to be faithful, to resist the enemy, to fight against him. Because he's going to come, he's, go, he's gunning for you. And so how will God guard us from that? What shield will he use to protect us from the attacks of the enemy? And we see here, don't we? Resist him firm in your faith. In Ephesians 6, it's called the shield of faith. The whole armour of God, this shield of faith that we're given by the Holy Spirit to, to resist the attacks of the enemy. In, um, I'll turn there now actually. In, in 1 Peter chapter 1, we saw that we, this is Peter as he's unpacking the promises that we have. He says, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 5, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation in the last time. That's amazing, isn't it? God's power is at work to protect you. And how is he going to protect you? Your faith. Amazing. Amazing. God is employing his mighty hand, which we humble ourselves under, to protect you by your faith. And suddenly that gives us a very different view of what faith is. Faith isn't something that I drum up. It's not me trying to believe as hard as I can. No, God is the source of our faith. He gives us the faith that we need to hold on to him. And, our, and the command, the encouragement that Peter gives us is hold on, hold on to us. Hold on to the faith that God has given us and to, to believe him that he is going to carry us through even the fiercest attacks of the enemy when he tempts us, when he tries to scare us, maybe by throwing us in prison. Maybe even to the point of our death. We're to resist in faith, believing that God holds on. And finally, we see, you know, lest we ever think that somehow this, this is some sort of battle that is going on, as, as though God and the devil were on even footing. We're told that he has dominion, complete rule. To him be the rule, the dominion forever and ever. He is the one in charge. Satan can only go as far as God lets him. <laughs> he can only do as much as God lets him. In the word of one theologian, he says, he's God's devil. He's, he belongs to him. He has to ask permission to have his way. That's what we see in Job, isn't it? You know, Satan comes to the throne of God and says, let me have at it. God says, okay, okay, you can do this, but no more than that. And what, what do we see? We see God preserve Job through that time. We see God preserve him. He's been given dominion. We saw this at the end of chapter 3. Hey, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers all being under him, having been subjected to him. And the promise is that in his power, I'll just end with this, in his power, he is going to restore he himself will restore confirm strengthen and establish you 
That's chapter 5, verse 10. Look out across this room. He's going to restore you those things that you, you feel like you're losing and you're suffering. He's going to restore them to you. Those lost years, those pains, those hurts. The promise is he's going to restore in glory everyone. Susella, <laughs> restoration for you. Complete restoration. It's the promise. God comes. He's going to restore all things. And he will guard you right through. Some of us are going to suffer even to death. But I tell you, it will all be eclipsed by the glory of the restoration that God gives us in eternity. Absolutely. Forever. I want to finish just by reading. We referred to the story of, of Daniel and the lion's den earlier. Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. There are people who are, are jealous of him and the, the authority and the position that he's been given. He's thrown into the lion's den and, and they come to the den in the morning. They roll the stone away. Is Daniel still going to be alive? Is he, is he going to survive the night with these, uh, with, with these lions? And the king calls out, Daniel, are you there? And Daniel says, I am. <laughs> God's preserved me from the mouth of the lion. Drawing parallel to the, the, the lion who is looking to devour us. The roaring enemy looking to devour us. God has preserved me from the mouth of the lion. And then they pulled Daniel out. And the king writes this letter to all the kingdom. And I just want to read it to you. Chapter, uh, Daniel chapter 6 verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. In all the kingdom of Persia. He says, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear, humble themselves, before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. He holds dominion. His dominion shall, never, shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. Beautiful. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And I'd go on. And he who saves us from the, the mouth of this roaring enemy who prowls around like a lion trying to devour us. He rescues us. 